Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. It's me, Barry Katz, and we have a really, really great show today. Um, I have two of the hottest producers in television, Jay Blumenfield and Tony Marsh, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about them and all of their accomplishments and their journey. But before I do, I normally like to tell a a cold open that has some sort of relationship with my guests. And of course, today will be no exception. Uh, Before I start, I just want to thank all of you for your letters and your emails and your texts and your smoke signals. It's incredible. Uh, The response, uh, it's just, it's so humbling. And I'm so grateful to all of you for making the show what I always uh, hoped it would be. And, uh, you know, a lot of you, uh, you listen to the podcast and I'll say something like, for instance, the advice I gave were, if you want to get the message to somebody, send a FedEx, everybody opens a FedEx. And, and if you don't have the money, go to a FedEx place, uh, take some envelopes and some slips, make it look like it's a FedEx and just hand deliver it. And no one will ever know. And, uh, your message will always be read, and I've been getting a lot of FedExes and um, UPS letters and um, things of that nature from you guys, and they're all wonderful. And keep them coming, and I'm 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 honored that uh, these podcasts uh, have made an impact on you. Uh, so, 
my story involves a client that I was working with for 17 years. Uh, um, we worked together for that long and, um, we had a great run together and, uh, I'm talking about Dane cook. And so then he came to me with another vision, a bigger vision. Um, he was getting very, very big, uh, getting a big following, but we hadn't really cashed in on it yet. And his next goal was to create a concert tour at the colleges and work their big venues, like 2,500 seats to 4,000 seats. And he wanted me to help him put it together. But his vision was bigger than that. His vision was to create a tour where it was him headlining and three comedians that were at different levels of their careers. So he decided to book one guy that was an opening act that was really just starting in the business and was running a, a huge room uh, in Hollywood called Dublin's. His name was Jay Davis. He wanted the next tier of artists to be a guy who was a great actor, a great comedian, and was doing a few television shows here and there, but hadn't really broken through in a big way yet. And that was Robert Kelly. And then the third act in the next tier was a guy who had done an hour special, had a DVD out, had done the Letterman show, the Tonight Show, and whose material was really, really evolved and really incredible. And if you ever get a chance to not only see him or any of these guys, you should. And his name was Gary Gullman. And so he came to me with this vision of the tour, and I thought, well, that's great. That'll be wonderful. You'll travel across the country. And I'm thinking to myself, what's new about this? And then he goes into his next thing, where he says, I want to rent a bus, like a tour bus, like a real rock and roll tour bus. And I want to go across the country with all these people in these cities. And I'm like thinking, okay, well, that's cool. I never really heard of that done with comedians, but, you know, it's a great vision. And I'm about to leave. And he says, and there's one other thing. I'm like, what's that? He said, I want to film this. I want to film every day in the bus. I want to travel to a different city. In that city where we stop, I want to do an activity that's unique to that city. I want to film my interaction and the other guys with the fans. I want to film the show. I want to film the after parties. I want to film the conflict, everything. And Barry, I want you to sell this show. And I said, Dane, um, I, um, I, 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 I can try to sell this show and I want to sell the show for you. And I always have the intention of doing that. But the cost of something like this just off the top of my head is even if we do it really inexpensively, for the amount of time you want to do it and the amount of dates you have, this this could cost between two hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand dollars. I mean the the bus alone with the fuel, I mean, has to be close to a hundred thousand dollars. He says, I don't care, Barry. I'm gonna take the money that we make from the colleges and I'm gonna invest it in this. And I'm going to spend my own money and I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to make it happen. And you're going to sell it. 
I said, but you know, I, I appreciate that. But what if I don't sell it? He says, you're going to sell it. I said, what happens if you don't sell it? I mean, I'm very positive, but what happens if we don't sell it? And he said, well, Barry, if we don't sell it, I'll have the most expensive home video in history that I can show my grandchildren. So, you know, again, I'm a very positive person. I stayed positive. He stayed positive, And we made a commitment to go and do this and made all the arrangements to run this initiative. And this included uh, making a graphic design for the name of the show that he had created for himself, which he called Tourgasm. And this big, big thing that was applied to both sides of this tour bus that was like incredible. Again, that had been rented out to many, many famous rock and roll bands. I remember um, it just is incredible the kind of uh, setup that this bus was. Um, comfortable seating and comfortable sleeping arrangements for everybody. Dane had like a master bedroom and back. Um, it was incredible. One of the things we didn't think in terms of was Dane was making money per gig, but he hadn't made money on the first gig yet. So we were traveling to the first gig and we stopped at the gas station to get gas and we're like, okay, we well, you got your credit card. He's like, oh, I don't, I don't like have the money to pay for the gas. Can you front the gas? And so I remember calling the company and we were calling the company to have the company front the gas and the company that I was at at the time was like, what the, you know, what the fuck? Why are we fronting the gas? This guy's doing, but we, we eventually got it together and it worked. And in each city, we had something happen that was amazing. And we would have lipstick cameras there. We had regular cameramen on board. And we filmed everything. And it was really, really incredible because we were out on the road. And we were doing this like, it was like, it was like guerrilla warfare. We were out there. We were making it happen. And we would hope that maybe we would get great stuff from it. And in the first day, there was a huge argument between Jay Davis and Robert Kelly. They were fighting, like, you know, shitting on each other, like no one's business. Like Robert Kelly was like yelling at uh, Jay, calling him a hypocrite because he was a religious guy talking about religion, but yet he was watching porn all the time. And here Robert Kelly was trying to avoid porn because he was a sex addict. And he was trying to get in a situation where he didn't look at porn anymore. And all the while, Gary Gullman was observing this. And Gary was a very sensitive guy. And he would get very depressed about, you know, all this conflict around him. And, you know, at first he'd be laughing, whatever. But then when it escalated, you know, it was, it was very difficult for him. And Dane also uh, experienced moments that he showed in front of the camera that were really, really um, incredible moments that you would never see, you know, at any other time. So we finished shooting and we have a ton of footage and um, all we have is ourselves doing this. Uh, and we edit together a three-minute sizzle reel. and. I really like what we had. I like what we put together. And 
I could only think of one place where I wanted to go, which was HBO and uh, Chris Albrecht, uh, who was the president there at the time, who's now at Stars and was a guest on this podcast. And the only problem with my plan was that Chris Albrecht fucking hated me because I was involved in something with Dave Chappelle where I was supposed to deliver Dave Chappelle to Chris Albrecht because he flew us out from New York and put us up and offered us specials and comic relief and sitcoms and talk shows. And in the end, Disney offered Dave and his friend and my client, Jim Brewer, a huge overall deal for their own show, which eventually turned out to be buddies. And so Dave walked away from that opportunity at HBO and Chris never let me forget it. And during the times of my career, people who were on the inside at HBO would call me up and they'd say, Barry, uh, I don't have to tell you this, but uh, it was a meeting with like 50 people in the meeting in a conference room and your name came up. I'm like, oh, cool. My name came up. Like, yeah, Barry, uh, Chris said, listen, we're not going to be working with Barry Katz anymore. <laughs> and so I knew all the information. I would write Chris probably a letter every year just saying how much I respected him and how much I was sorry for what happened. And, you know, I would be honored to be back in business with him. And every year, nothing. Couldn't sell anything to HBO. Couldn't get him in the room. But Dane was getting hot and I figured talent rules. And so I decided to call Chris and surprisingly, he picked up the phone and um, he said he would take a meeting. I said to him, Chris, before I start, um, I just want you to know that I'm sorry. I'm deeply sorry for what happened. I, I, I can never make it up to you. I, I, uh, I have to live with it for the rest of my life, what happened. But... I believe in you. I respect you. I respect your company and, and I want to be with the best. And, and I believe Dane Cook is the best and he's at the top of his game and I have something really special and I want to bring it to you first. And I promise you, I will write it in blood. I will do whatever you need me to do that I will not go anywhere else at all. I will not do anything. I'll sign whatever you want me to sign. You have the first shot, and until you tell me you don't want it anymore, it's yours. And he said, okay, Barry, let's sit down. He was amazing. We popped in the um, video, Sizzle of Tourgasm, and... When it turned off, he looked at me and he looked at Dane and he said, let's do it. Let's do the series. I want to do like nine or ten episodes. Um, we'll do a limited uh, series, docu-series. So, and, and Dane was happy about that because he didn't want to do uh, this every year. He just wanted to stand alone. And he said, listen, uh, sharpen your pencils, put a budget together, what that would look like. And um, let us know, and uh, let's move forward with this. So before the meeting with Chris Albrecht ended, uh, what 
I brought him up to him was, uh, I said, look, you know, I know you've already said you want to do this nine or 10 episodes. And I don't mean to seem like a guy who's a schnorr, which in uh, Jewish means a guy who is a, uh, uh, takes more and more and more. But I said, it makes sense that if we could do an hour special at the end of this, it could be a really amazing tie-in. So Chris said, you know, Barry, I was thinking the same thing and uh, we'll put together a budget for that as well and we'll work on producing that as well, but this will be a separate kind of production that we'll be working on. And I shook Chris's hand and I thanked him and I apologized again. And he said, don't worry about it, Barry. Uh, We'll get him with this one. And, um, so I went back and we put a budget together. Um, and the way we looked at it, we figured that to do it at a reasonable rate, we try to do it for around $2 million for nine or 10 episodes, around 200, $225,000 an episode. This way we could bring in a great showrunner. We could bring in great editors to edit all the footage that we had, which was hours and hours and hours of of content. And um, we could shape it with graphics and a unique storytelling and narrative. And we could also make sure that Dane Cook made an enormous amount of money on his $300,000 investment where he bet on himself. And so the next step after you go this route is you want to set together meetings with showrunners, people that are going to come in, have a vision for the project with your artist and help run it and make the cuts and make the storytelling the best it possibly can be to be a successful show. And if you're a manager or an agent or anybody in somebody's life, normally you try to set up three meetings for an artist because it's important that they get a sense of who you know, people are and what they like. And, and for, uh, me, I set up uh, three meetings. Um, I'm not going to talk about who the other two were, but, um, the people that I was really excited for a day in the meet were, uh, Jay Blumenfield and Tony Marsh, my guest today, because they had a great vision They were unique guys, and there was a show that they had on television that I really loved called Family Business, which was an amazing show centering around a porn star who called himself Seymour Butts and uh, his young 10-year-old son and the family that ran the business. And even though the backdrop was the adult film industry, this was a guy who was a really special man and just trying to do the right thing. And the storytelling and the family conflict were so fantastic. I thought it'd be a great situation because in the end, Dane, Jay Davis, Robert Kelly, and Gary Gullman were family and they were together in this closed area and they were trying to make it work. So we took the showrunner meetings And thankfully, Dane decided on Jay and Tony to have the vision to put it together. So normally what happens when you have showrunners is that a lot of times in reality television and also scripted television, they come in from fairly on in the beginning and they help 
steer the ship. They help create the show and they help put it together. What was different about this show is that it had already been created. It had already been shot. And we just needed a showrunner or showrunners who were going to be able to look at what the vision of what we had and, and, and put it into a format that worked, which was pretty rare uh, to do something like that. And, but Jay and Tony were up to the challenge and they did an absolutely amazing job with the budget we had. And, um, and we were in a situation where this $300,000 of Dane's own money, he obviously got it all back and more. And as he was an executive producer, he was a creator, he was on camera. And the three guys participated as well financially, and they were very happy because they got to be on a series on HBO. They got to be with their friend. They got to showcase their talents. And so Dane was in a situation where not only was he betting on himself, but he was inspiring other people, and he was helping other comedians, which is one of the greatest feelings in the world as an artist. And... So at the end of the day, we had a docu-reality series that was one of the highest rated series for young people on HBO. We had a hour special, which was actually a 90-minute special from Boston Garden, Vicious Circle, that was one of the highest rated specials in HBO history done in an arena where he sold out two shows in one night, 39,000 people. And I think if there's any lesson to be learned here, it's that you have to bet on yourself. You have to put yourself in a position to win. And the only way you can put yourself in a position to win and consistently win is if you do that. And... That's the lesson for the people out there in the audience and for any artist. And also for people on the other side, the business like myself, the lesson is persistence and more persistence. Because I had to fight through a situation with a president of a network, one of the most powerful people in show business who didn't want to take a meeting with me, who didn't want to take my call, who didn't want anything to do with me. But I fought through it. I fought through the feelings that I had of negativity and for the common good of the artist and the project, I succeeded in getting his attention and the combination of Dane Cook betting on himself and the combination of my persistence and not going to the negative and staying positive helped us to persevere in getting a groundbreaking series on the air and one of the most amazing comedy specials, in my opinion, of all time. So the lesson here and my words of wisdom are a broken record for you. For anybody out there, anything you do, anything you're doing, any career, if you put yourself in a position to win and do all the things that I mentioned that we were able to do, 
through this process, I can guarantee you, you will prevail. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're f***ing firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. I'm very excited, but before I start and introduce my guest, I want to tell you that this is the first time I'm ever doing a podcast with two people in my office. And as they say in the business, those who can't manage. And I am not a technical genius, and you'd think like I would have everything planned and whatever, and I'm testing out these microphones And one of them sounds like I'm playing a game of telephone with somebody from uh, Bali. But uh, I hope these guys don't get upset. And I hope that you guys in the audience aren't disappointed in me. Uh, I am so sorry. I promise it'll never happen again. And so... Uh, this podcast is, I guess, about a lot about apologizing. So uh, whether it's to Chris Albrecht, to my guests, or you, the audience, that I rely on so much and, and that have done so much for me. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. My special guests today, Jay Blumenfield and Tony Marsh. I'd like to introduce them. It's going to be long, but it's going to be vital. <laughs> uh, they are the creative forces behind the production company, the Jay and Tony Show. Um, they started off with one of their first projects was a project called Small Town Ecstasy, which was a documentary for HBO about a father who starts doing drugs with his children, which was nominated for a DGA award. 
Uh, they followed that up with the critically acclaimed series uh a lot of them actually i always say when people say critically acclaimed it's like what is that the critically whenever you say critically acclaimed it's like okay the respected but low rated (laughs) 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 but uh but they did series (laughs) with people like johnny rotten ted nugent missy elliott um drew carey many many more they created and produced a show that I alluded to earlier called Family Business, which I love, which we're going to talk about, about the porn industry. They're also no strangers to controversy. They produced an ABC show, Welcome to the Neighborhood, that never aired that tackled the ramifications of prejudice in America in a small cul-de-sac in Texas. Uh, they recently created and produced many, many popular series, including Gigolos for Showtime, uh, Restaurant Stakeout for the Food Network, Resort Rescue for the Travel Channel, LOL Work for Bravo, uh, The Wiener's Circle for True TV, Little Chocolatiers for TLC, Here Come the Newlyweds, and High School Musical for ABC, uh, and of course, Dane Cook's Tourgasm and the Chelsea Handler Show for E!, which uh, Chelsea will provide numerous stories, uh, an amazing uh, creative force. Uh, they helped make Daredevil Nick Walendo one of the biggest stars on the Discovery Network with several wire-walking specials. And they currently are in a deal with Relativity Television. Please welcome my guests today, very excited, Jay Blumenfield and Tony Marsh. Hello. All right. That was a fantastic yeah, intro. Did my, my mom write that? <laughs> that was awesome. Your mom could write that. Now, Tony, you said earlier in Jay that you have a story about uh, uh, something you want to tell me right off the bat. So, uh, Tony, why don't you start? Well, it's not quite as sincere as the perseverance that you spoke of in the <laughs> open, but it, it does have to do with uh, sticking things out. When we first uh, you know, got wind of the project... Uh, tourgasm, you know, one of the first things you have to do is, like you said, you set up some meetings and then we were one of the meetings you set up, thankfully, and we had to meet uh, Dane. So he was in town. He was doing a show at the Laugh Factory. So we went down uh, to catch the show and then we were going to hang out with him for a few minutes after, just get a sense of him and he was going to get a sense of us. And hopefully we were going to, you know, get along well and, you know, make a make a deal. So uh, Jay and I carpooled down there because we care about the environment, and uh, the show was great. But you know, halfway through his set, I, st- I started feeling a little queasy, and uh, might have been all the bad perfume in the room. I don't know, but I decided, you know what? I'm not. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. So I went outside, try to get some air. Uh, ends up that I start throwing up in the dumpster behind uh, <laughs> the deli next door. And uh, I called Jay. I'm like, dude, I'm out, I'm out back. I'm throwing up. We, we have to go. You have to take me home. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, are you kidding me? We have to meet Dane. I'm, like, <laughs> I, I'm serious. I think I'm dying. I'm pretty sure I just barfed up a piece of my intestine. Come get me. When was the last time you threw up before that in I, your I, life? Probably 15 years earlier. He, wow. He's, he's not a vomiter. <laughs> No, so, like even when so I, this was serious, <laughs> right? No, even like when I'm super drunk, I'll spin, I'll sell my soul to whomever will buy. I'm just like, please don't let me throw up, don't let me throw up. I will never throw up. And this was scary, and I thought something was seriously wrong with me. And uh, Jay's like, no, I gotta meet Dane. So <laughs> I laid. I love him. you, buddy, but he's one of the biggest comics around. Come on, I gotta meet the guy. And so I didn't know what to do. And it's not like another city where you could like hail a cab. I didn't know what to. Do. I've never had a cab in Los Angeles in my life. So I like curled up. <laughs> in the in the alley behind the deli next to the laugh factory and eventually i thought okay i don't know what to do so i went in 
to the Laugh Factory and they called me a car and it took me home and I actually threw up on the way home in the guy's cab and I got yelled at in some language I don't know. <laughs> and uh, Well, because when you throw up in a cab, there's like a $100 fine or something. That you, it's automatic. It's a national law. I gave him everything in my wallet and then I don't, I don't really don't remember the drive. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm, I'm having a beautiful meeting with Dane at Bernie Greengrass <laughs> or whatever that place is next next door. And uh, and we're just, we're eating deli food and hitting it off. And uh, That's right, Jay. We did have that. You did have a great meeting. You, you know, Tony, what might have happened had you made the meeting you might not have gotten the gig. You might have been like, I don't like that guy. Well, I, all I was thinking on the drive home, other than please don't throw up in this guy's car, which I guess I didn't listen. But uh, I was thinking to myself, great, we, we might not get the gig. And then Jay got to hang out with Dane Cook, who I was a big <laughs> fan of. And I'm like, oh, awesome. I'm going to miss out on just the one meeting we're going to have. But luckily, Jay, I guess, impressed him. And we got the job and uh, we made the show. Awesome. So what I like to do, I like to start off uh, these podcasts from the beginning, like from the point in time where uh, an executive or an artist has no illusions of being in show business. And then something happens that lets them know, I, I want to do this kind of thing. And then the thing that happened and then what their first situation was that got them in. So, Jay, I'll start with you. Uh, what was what were you doing? Where were you living? What was happening? And 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 then what was the moment that that took place? And then what was your entrance? Wow. Um. I. I mean, uh, Tony and I met in college, and we were college roommates, and. We had no aspirations to do anything other than try to have a good time. It's fate. It's this is what's so crazy about life is that you, there was there's no there's no planning for the for being college roommates. You just go and out of how many thousands of people, you're just like a lottery system, and you're there, and 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 then it all it's just amazing. Well, this is even weirder because we weren't in the lottery system. We were freshmen in college, and all of a sudden, we both were hearing from various people, hey, have you met that guy, Tony? Like, you guys would probably be friends. You guys are very similar. And I was from New York, and he was from L.A. Like, there's no reason we – but both of our both of us had friends who said, you guys got to meet each other. And so it was really weird. I kept hearing about this guy, Tony, who I should be friends with. And finally, we we met at some terrible frat party by the keg when – Everybody wouldn't let us get drinks, and and we ended up talking, and and we ended up becoming friends. And then he lost his roommate, and I joined him in his apartment. Awesome! You know so. that no one has ever told me I should be friends with anybody. That's uh, <laughs> that, that tells that tells me that I've, I've, I'm a lost cause. But anyway, so you meet in college, so you become college roommates your freshman year. Uh, sophomore year. sophomore year we became. Roommates. So okay, so your 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 Jay, your major is what, and Tony, your major is what. What was my major? Um, uh, humanities field study thank major. You, thank you, friend. He's Tony's also my memory. <laughs> he he remembers. If things I die, and, Jay will have no recollection of his young adult <laughs> life. So yeah, so I was humanities field study, whatever that means. And I was a uh, environmental design major, which was like the architecture department. Well, that'll qualify you to drive any cab of a throwing up person anywhere in LA. For a few years, my parents thought they'd have an architect, and it made them really happy. That's awesome. We've tell, told many architectural stories here. So, Tony, you were you were from what town again? Uh, right here. Right here, and you were from where, Jay? New York. New York. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you're 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 there. You're in college. Uh, you're having fun. Um, putting the tie on the door. Uh, who had the tie on the door most? Well, I didn't actually have a door because I was living in the kitchen nook. 
because we we, we, we called it the breakfast room annex. Whatever. <laughs> there was there was no real door, so so it was even more complicated. How did how did you lose that bet? <laughs> well, he had the place, and I just needed a place. So that's kind of the that's how that's how he won. But then again, when we invented the company uh, name and logo, my name goes first. So I think I win in the end. I think maybe you do win in the wow, end. That's quite a, although that's a lot of jump, but okay. <laughs> Although, you know, Betty White has the end card. Just remember that. <laughs> so, so okay, so your roommates, your, where, where are you going to school? UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley. Okay, so tell me the first thing that happens that, that somehow makes you guys feel like uh, you want to be in the entertainment business. What is it, Tony? Um, it's a very bizarre and not such a great story. I don't think there's a one particular moment. I wish there was. I think... Jay was in a band for years, uh, you know, living out the rock star life and, you know, getting, selling the rights to his songs and living and didn't really have a job. It's so weird you say that because when I sit across from you guys, you know, uh, I always felt like you guys reminded me of Herb from accounting. You know what I mean? It's like I would never think of you guys as I rock know stars. What you mean. No, I don't know what you mean. That's a horrible thing. To <laughs> Herb from accounting. Wow. All right, well, there's there's a lot more therapy I'm going to need. <laughs> awesome. Herb from accounting. I thought he was going to say, oh, I w which instrument did you play? Which guy was the lead singer? Oh, no. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, no, yeah, Herb from accounting. Herb from accounting. All right, well. That's um, the next name of our next Herb production company. Herb from accounting. Herb from accounting productions. Not bad. Like, first of all, Herb is just a I mean, no. I had an Uncle Herb once. Everything about that sentence is just terrible. Thanks, I am so sorry. I just... <laughs> Because you're these, you're just <laughs> keep going, Barry. Please, yeah, this is awesome. I'm glad I'm spending my uh, go go. I'll enjoy the free drink. Now, now I'm now I'm understanding the Chris Albrecht story just a little more. <laughs> I didn't mean it in an insulting way. I meant okay, it in the. What I mean, other than the guy out there named Herb, who's like fuck all of you. What way are you to take that? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll tell you which way. You look like a little nebbish who crunches numbers. You look like a Jewish guy who crunches numbers. Yes. Awesome. Anyway, moving on. Do you not? Do you not so, feel like I? I'm. My name is Barry Katz. My mother should have named me Jew Israel. Okay. I'm. Uh, nobody says more things about me than uh, than everybody else, and uh, I don't want to say all the, the things. I'm, I didn't mean it insultingly. That's that's okay. I'm sorry. So, I'm going to make so you anyway, go through many th ther much therapy. This is horrible. Back. I'm going to have to edit this part of the podcast out for. Oh, this is the best part of the podcast. Are you kidding? Come on. <laughs> you haven't gotten to the time when you insult me after this is all over. Jay was indeed a, a very, very talented musician. Sexy. Looks like a rock star. Thank you, Barry. He We're might back. Have, yes. <laughs> awesome. Um, and uh, anyway, so uh, Jay was rocking and I was uh, back in Los Angeles. Uh, living at home again. My parents' dreams of having an architect were dashed at that point. And I was just uh, floundering around and a friend of mine uh, got me a job as a PA uh, for a director. And so I just, you know, I got big. Uh, a film director? A film or director, yeah, Joe Dante. Joe um, Dante? Joe Dante. Um, and and what, did, what did uh, some of the movies that Joe had done at that point? Uh, at that point, he had done all of the movies that he ever was probably going to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, you were a nice man to work with. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, four, the four times we ever met. But did you ever call Joe Herb from accounting? No, I didn't. We didn't talk much. I was just a, sort of an office guy. Which is worse of an insight, saying what you just said or Herb from accounting? Herb from accounting. <laughs> um, we're never going to leave this one, are we? Um, 
Anyway, I was a PA, and then I was a PA on other things, and sort of just did that thing. Just was a you know low level grunt running around. For those of you who don't know, a PA production assistant, it's a production a assistant, gopher, a low level grunt. I never heard that before. I want you to know, I've laughed more in the first segment of this than any other one that I've laughed. I don't know what it is. It's like you guys have this way about you that's so fun. That one of us is laughing. <laughs> You know how Herb from accounting is. He's all serious. <laughs> fucking all business. Uh, yeah. um, so back to Herb's story. Um, so he was a PA on, a, uh, on many shows. No, any, anyway, so uh, eventually I got an opportunity to uh, be a segment producer in the early days of reality television. They were sort of just shows for when, T- when TLC was actually called the Learning Channel, when learning actually went on there. And... Uh, just started working my way through the ranks of being a segment producer, you know, booking shoots, uh, interviewing people, doing all that kind of stuff. And eventually got, you know, some producing credits under my belt. So, but you're doing that alone, Tony. And what's Jay doing at this time? I'm I'm getting there eventually. Well, Jay's (laughs) being a rock star at this point. He's living a great life. I'm living an amazing life. I'm, I'm touring the country. I'm, I'm jumping on stage. I'm making music videos. I'm doing radio station interviews, and I call him once in a while, and he tells Wait, so me. So I don't, I don't understand. So I, I guess I'm missing. Yeah. So you're, you're in a band that's signed to a label that's sending you out to these places. Correct. Yeah, I was, I was in a band that was signed to Giant Warner Brothers. Oh, awesome! What was the name of the band? It's called Too Much Joy. Too Much Joy, and can people still buy the music? Um, I think so. Got it. Now, what oh, was the yes. s- what, what? It's all available. Now, Jay. Every last embarrassing <laughs> video where Jay's wearing purple socks and orange shorts. It's the long tail. Exactly. And he's yeah. dressed as a Laker. Um, <laughs> so, I'm not sure what he was dressed as. I think he, it was some kind of statement. So, uh, what was the second choice uh, after Too Much Joy? <laughs> for the band, we we had we had made we we had an idea of calling it Tonton Meku, which is the name of the Haitian secret police, which means my aunt is watching me. Uh, I think you made the right choice. I think so I mean, we're a little pretentious, okay, but but uh, we didn't go with Tonton Meku. So Tony's off producing and getting in the business, and you're correct on the other side of the business in the music business. So what happens to? I mean, you're this doing- is where much of the resentment comes from. <laughs> today uh so while i'm busting my ass and doing a lot of shit jobs jay is living the rock star life never really had a paying job in his life until uh he was hurting for some money and he said hey can you throw me a gig and i had uh i hired him to go out and uh field produce some stuff that i was working on but how did you know he could do that normally you don't really go into field producing without any experience I think we made a lot of things up on a resume that didn't probably exist. Well, be, but I, I, had, I would say, I had, hypothetically speaking, in case anybody. He, he felt bad for me, I think. and he How gave could me he a, feel ba- bad for you? You're picking groupies out of the front row to sleep with in the back room with your purple shorts and your purple socks. <laughs> and maybe, maybe he was just desperate. I'm not sure. Why did you hire me? That was a really dumb You move. think Herb from accounting is getting laid like that at rock shows? No. Exactly. No. No. Um, well, I, I had done one one TV gig before Tony hired me in New York, which I which I had actually lied my way into. What happened was the band sort of started to falter after three or four albums, and and as you know, this is a running theme of this podcast: is if you lie, if, you'll be able to get where you want to go. There you go. And the kids out there, remember that always lie. <laughs> uh, so 
the band was just sort of, I was waiting for someone to call me. I was sitting in New York in my underwear in my crappy apartment thinking I was a rock star, but the phone wasn't ringing anymore. We were dropped from one label. We were going on to another. I realized I had to do something else. And a friend of mine called up and said, hey, I just was asked to do this job as a producer on this VH1 show called Where Are They Now? Now, Where Are They Now? It was a show about famous rock bands and artists that used to be super famous and then fell from grace and you could sort of look at wow so your like, first gig was interviewing falco from rock me amadeus close it was actually interviewing uh peaches and herb wow uh, reunited reunited and i walked into the the job interview and see and, herb is the running theme yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> and and uh and yes yeah, slide my way into the job they needed someone desperately the next day i'm on a train to go meet peaches and herb in dc I meet them at their crappy, sad house, which was really depressing because that was a huge song, but somehow they hadn't spent their money well. And they had this backyard of, full of weeds, and I saw this little hand lawnmower, you know, the kind that you have to push, and it rolls, and it cuts the lawn. And I said, hey, can you guys, while I'm shooting, can you guys mow the lawn together? And they said, sure. And then I'm looking through the monitor, and I watch them, and I'm thinking, hmm, can you guys sing Reunited while you're mowing the lawn together? And they say, Sure. And they start singing Reunited while they're mowing their sad lawn in the back of their sad house in D.C. And I look through the monitor and think, OK, maybe I could do this job. And it, and so I did that job for maybe 10 episodes. And then he he finally hired me. And No, but what's interesting, what you said is that there's always a point in time for anybody. It doesn't matter what profession you're in, where you say to yourself, I can do this. So, Tony, what was your moment throughout all these jobs where you said to yourself, I can do this and I'm not going to be doing anything ever again? Or are you still waiting for that moment to happen? No, I was still busy thinking about how you were patting yourself on the back because you saw Peaches and Herb do something cool and that was when you realized you could be a good producer, um, which is tremendous all these years later. I think he's still... Thanks, buddy. No, I mean, it would be great if we I, I had those moments. I mean, Jay does have a really good sense of what is compelling and I think is just an intuitive feeling of knowing that you're in the, mo the right place at the right time and you're capturing something that is special, that is real, authentic, compelling, whatever the words are, that is just, wow, this is good, good television. And those moments, you know, don't happen that often, but when they do, you go, wow, this is a really cool thing. And especially when it's successful or people respond that way, you go, okay, maybe... Maybe we do know what we're doing, but there's so much doubt in all in, in all of these stories that I don't really know if there's one moment that I go, oh, wow, that's when I knew I could do this. It was basically just I could do this job better than the guy that's above me. I could take his job eventually, and I was just tired of working for dickheads. So I just kept thinking, okay, how do I get his job or how do I get her job or you know whatever, and then just kept working hard and eventually got those opportunities. And Tony, one, one of the things that you just said was jogged my memory. When I interviewed uh, Tom Werner for the podcast from Carsey Werner, who, you know, they've developed Cosby and Roseanne and home uh, and um, Sybil and third rock from the sun, grace under fire. And um, what had happened was uh, Marcy was like the president of the network and Tom was just coming in as a lower level person. And, he had done a lot of work that impressed her and then she left again similarly like you guys are going to talk about 
she gave up a great gig. She gave up security and took an office above a sneaker store in Studio City. And then when she left, Tom was promoted to her job. And she called him every morning at 9 a.m. and said, you going to come over? You going to work with me? You going to work with me? And she wore him down. And he left that security and went with her and, again, tying into this podcast early on, the persistence and then the taking a risk and betting on yourself. So you're doing this peaches and herbs stuff. The rock star thing is, is fading off into the distance. You're doing segment producing and, and not or not the highest level producing, and you're working for people who are sometimes not the nicest people in the world to deal with. Now you work together on something. Is it that moment when you decided, you know, you left out the part where I kept hiring Jay because of a, I'm not sure, I guess a deep sense of loyalty to a friend. The really sweet, sensitive stuff that nobody wants to talk about. No, but that is good. That is important. Were you hiring him just as a friend or were you hiring him because you knew that he could do it or both? Both. For sure, both. I mean, I think his his instincts when he was writing music to when he was even going back to college, when he was writing papers or doing short films uh, for his major, there was always a sense of great, you know, insight into people, great sense of storytelling and the things that would make a good producer he had just as a human being. I mean, that sounds a little highfalutin, but it's it's true. And he he was, you know, obviously, like I said, a great friend. And I wanted to always be the kind of person that was loyal. And that's sort of what we've built most of our, hopefully a good reputation on is that we are loyal, good guys. That was always important. So it started with me being loyal to Jay. Wow. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's something that's so uh, rare here in this, uh, in this town. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned something that I'm going to take a little detour on before we go to the next part. Cause I think this is important for our audience. One of the things that we don't understand most of us when we watch television, I know I didn't for a long, long time, is the importance of, of one thing that is the key to every single scripted television show, film, reality program, whatever it is, is the storytelling, um, which is from when we're young kids uh, listening to um, children's stories and children's books. There's always a story that has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and throughout the process has heart and has a movement in the story to where there's normally a conflict, and then there's a resolution. Talk about when you both learned about story and how important it was, because the basis between almost every show that you're doing that's successful in my opinion, which we'll talk about, is the storytelling and how it's told. And for family business, for me, it was just amazing because as a guy, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, uh, we do, we have watched porn, we have gone on the internet, we have rented videos, and sadly, <clears throat> it's a part of almost every man's life at some point in time, whether he wants to admit it or not. And a lot of times, many women. And so the amazing thing about family business for me, which I love so much, is you had this guy that was this guy who nicknamed himself Seymour Butts, 
who had some of the most graphic, unbelievably powerful videos that were adult videos that almost a lot of them appeared to be where there were people that didn't even know what they were getting into. And then there were other people around him that hung around him and wanted to be around for the filming beautiful women who would sometimes participate with him, sometimes would just be a part of actually the production process. And he, I know this is so hard to believe, but uh, here's a guy I'm talking about porn, but his videos had this feeling like there was a sense of community in them. He was one of the few guys that instead of it was just like, hey, here, just tune in here and see this. It wasn't like he was trying to tell a movie story like old time porn, but in a short spurt of, uh, pardon the expression, uh, of, 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 of incredible storytelling, he would show you that there was somebody there, a friend of his, there'd be a girl there, whatever, and throughout the process, and it made you invested in him. And then when the show came out, it took it one step further where he was actually in a business with his family and there were, you know, relatives and, and un crazy uncles and people and arguments and conflict. And then he had a, a young son that was a part of the process and you had to be sensitive to telling the story and how much the son knew about his business. But in the end, it was all about the storytelling, the family, and the fact that it was the behind the scenes of adult films hadn't you didn't even know you didn't care all you all you cared about was the storytelling and and i thought that was something that's amazing about what you do so let us know when you first really learned about that process and how important it was to having successful television well, i think <clears throat> there's a couple of thoughts on storytelling i think just the word storytelling and the idea of talking about story has become, at least in our world of, of reality TV and unscripted, it's become something that network execs love to use all the story structure words. And I think it's been detrimental to the kinds of shows that are on because I think you get you get too up your own ass about story and the whole thing falls apart. I think um, I think. A lot of people think story is backstory, which is an actual story. Like when when people are pitching us ideas and and they they're trying to tell us what the story is, it's all about the history of this guy that happened and we'll never see again. That's just backstory. That's great, but that doesn't tell us what's gonna what's gonna happen in front of the camera coming up. Family business was a revelation for us because when we first started shooting with him before we sold the show, we were thinking more of like a serious dramatic doc kind of follow like for HBO like an America undercover about the the underbelly of the porn industry and we shot a bunch of tape and it was so that was your vision your it, first vision it, it, when we first just kind of started shooting tape we're like okay that we'll do a doc for HBO and that's the vision that he thought it was going to be that I think he every, agreed to. everybody just thought nobody was sure but we started shooting that and we put something together and we watched it and it was an intense 20 minutes of documentary footage about the sadness of the porn industry. And it was intense. And we realized after looking at it that we didn't want to see that and nobody else did. And we had this moment where we were looking at that footage and realizing that it was great as a doc documentary, but it didn't feel right. And then we started to think, well, what if we just turn this into a 
full-on sitcom? What if we made this a comedy? Right, because if you think about it, here is a, a single guy raising a, you know, a precocious little boy. He has a meddlesome Jewish mother and a crazy uncle, and they all work in a family business. Well, that sounds like somebody could have come up with that as a, an idea for a, you know, a, a sitcom. So, Jay, so how did you change the uh, tone of what it was? You, know, you, you have this footage, and it's, it's dark. How do you decide you're going to change it and... Well, we started looking at the characters and we went and shot some more tape and like we met um, Cousin Stevie and and we just, we watched him on the phone yelling at somebody and we're like, okay, that's Uncle Stevie, whatever. Uh, it was a while ago. And and, uh, <laughs> and and we watched him yell at somebody and we're like, okay, that's your car- that's your comic attitude. You're, you're the guy who says fuck off to everybody. Conflict. And and then it just became real simple. Like we just, we simplified everything to their, their, we didn't make them anything that they weren't, but we just took one aspect of them and just went with it. I mean, we've, we've talked, we sort of tell people this, but whatever. Um, the way we look at, you know, unscripted TV is like sculpting. So you have scripted TV, which is more like, you know, like a painting or a drawing where you start with a blank page and you add to it whatever you want. You create whatever images you, you, you want to create. Because you're starting from scratch with with unscripted stuff, you're sort of starting with a big blob of something that already exists, and you have to sort of carefully chip at what it is to find the the thing that you want within it. So it's much more like sculpting. So we we sort of found, you know, these were these characters that we were given, and we sort of polished off some of the edges of their lives that didn't really work, and sort of created the characters that did work for a comedy. So it was about juxtaposing his adult life with his family life. And that sort of became how he looked at story through that filter. And I think what's interesting about you guys is that you do this kind of thing. That's uh that very few people like you don't have a specific lane. You can, you do comedy and drama equally. Well, the lane that you do have is you have this kind of like, I don't even know if there's a word for these kind of shows, whether it's docu-reality or whatever it's called, but it's like a, a, that's your specific lane that I find that for the most part is the thing that people love to have you work on. It's a very specific thing. And one of the first projects you worked on for HBO, can you talk about that project that uh, was nominated for the DGA award and how you both got together? And, and I want to know, was that the first thing where you decided to start your own company and stop working for everybody else? And as a backup question to that is like, you know, both of you aren't really necessarily, as you say, doing well financially. You don't really have a lot of money in the bank. Um, you might have been living check to check at that point. How do you decide to start your own company and go into this first project? And, and how are you supplementing your income while you're starting your own company and making the jump? Well, that that project we had we had it started out as a as a documentary just about ecstasy in general, um, and the drug ecstasy, not the feeling of euphoria. And this is the project Small Town Ecstasy. I'm Correct. sorry, yeah, Jay, yeah, go on. And and. Uh, I went into the field and Tony stayed back and, and what we, what we, and, you know, and sort of looked at the footage as it came in and, and we started just casting. We went, I went up to San Francisco where there's a kind of a rave scene and we met drug dealers and we met a psychiatrist who was using it in his practice. We met all these different people and that was going to 
it was just going to be this cross section of of people who use ecstasy. Had you guys ever used ecstasy before you did the uh, documentary? So moving on, <laughs> uh, I, I will tell Even you. Bill Clinton said I did. I did just didn't inhale. I, I will tell you which will. You could probably, say I took the drug, but I just kept it on my tongue. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you which will answer your question. Having shot that and watched people through the lens of a camera, sweating and chewing on their own mouths and and shaking, it made me never want to do that drug again because. When you see it up that close and you see what what people's eyes look like and you're looking through the lens of a camera close up and you're talking to somebody who's rolling hard, you realize just how, how screwed up that, that can make one. So, Jay, you start shooting this thing and you're working in your other jobs or you're is this the first thing you're working on together that you think to yourself... It's going to be the Jay and Tony show company. This is our first thing or like, how does it work? On, on that one, we're working with Arnold Shapiro Productions. And, and so this was like our first gig together, but we're, but we're still, we still have a, a sort right. Of we were sort of working on numerous projects uh, for Arnold and uh, we, were, we were getting weekly salaries. So that's, you know, the, the pay, the, the pay was sort of a, a weekly position. Um, and so, Tony, when was the moment that happened where you guys got in the corner somewhere or for a drink and said, hey, you know what, uh, let's keep working for Shapiro here, but we're going to start our own company and we're going to develop our own projects? It, it was a gradual thing. And, and what we did was we sort of became a barnacle to Arnold, who's been a mentor and an amazing friend over the years. But we started our own company as we were sort of living in his company and he kind of let us. So we... So we, we would do projects for him, uh, again, like on a weekly basis. We would just get hired, you know, for like 10-week jobs to go out in the field and produce and edit stuff. And then meanwhile, we were thinking of our own shows and trying to convince Arnold to go sell those for us, sort of, you know, developing for him. And then I think at one point um, he was working on Big Brother uh, with Alison Grodner, who was his partner at the time. And we just said, hey, what if we just live out of one office in your in your suite and we'll develop stuff and we'll let it flow through your company. If you want to, you want to go sell those shows, we'll, we'll work on those together. And if not, we'll take them on our own and we'll pay rent eventually when we can. And they were kind enough to allow us that kind of relationship. And for those of you listening and, and in the audience, this is the kind of story that I love because there were a lot of people that rolled through Arnold Shapiro's offices a lot of people. I mean, not five, not ten, hundreds of people that came through in different capacities. And how many people did Arnold Shapiro decide that he was going to put in his office, give free rent and say, hey, come up with ideas and, and we'll do them together? Two guys. And so it's, again, through hard work and doing things that are really undeniable that blow people away. You get people's attention. And if you do great work and better work than everybody else that's in the office, you're going to be noticed and you're going to rise to the top. And if you don't, you're going to go home. And, and I think, I think just the difference we, we had the bug and we, we worked really hard and really long. And I think there are other people that do that. We but but as an example, we always assumed everybody wanted it as much as we did and worked as hard. And there was a guy that we hire all the time on different shows, and but he's more of a nine to fiver. And at one point, he we were pushing him to do something for us, and he said, 
I don't want to be you guys. Like, I just want to, I want to just get my paycheck and like, I'm happy to, I'll do a good job, et cetera. But I don't want to, I don't want that. And that was sort of a revelation for us. Like we just assumed everybody else felt the same way. And Jay, and Jay, that's the way most people feel sadly about the world. And I always remember something that Bobby Knight said. He said, most people have the will to win. Few people have the will to prepare to win. And 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 that's the difference. And uh, and so he's a basketball coach, Jay. In case you're wondering who that yeah, was, I figured it was sports. I wasn't <laughs> I, sure where, but sports. yeah, you didn't, I knew you yeah, didn't know yeah, that yeah, was. Thanks, buddy. Wendy decide our mentor. You know, this has been great, but we have to do our own thing because financially, it's you know we have it to was, split the 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 revenue and the executive producer. Now, were you executive producers on that project? I think we were co-executive producers. And just to let you guys know in the audience what happens when you're starting, even though credits don't cost anything, they don't cost anybody any amount of money, there's this thing in this town that people are constantly fighting to keep you down and to keep your credit as low as possible. It's a, it's a really bizarre thing. I don't know if it's control, it's power, whatever it is. And it's an, nobody talks about it. Nobody says why. They never give you answers. Well, why can't I have that credit? Why can't I have the executive producer credit? Which, by the way, the highest credit in television, co-executive producer being the second highest title. And, and it's just the reason is, in a sense, that um, when you're the executive producer, you have one of the votes. You have one of the votes that's going to decide whether something's going to happen or not. When you're co-executive producers, if there's a dispute and it's a tiebreaker, you lose. And so uh, here you were, you you created something, you were the driving force behind something. The guy who you brought it to had the executive producer credit. He was your mentor, but he he still kept you in your place and whether it, it, it was uh, it was something that wasn't a conscious decision or one that was the point being is that you still you were moving up it was your highest credit to that point but now you knew you had to go to the next level and get that credit and get it get the credit on your own I mean credits were never something that Jay and I really ever fought for and cared that much about. To be honest, I was something, I mean, I think we wanted our, our company logo on things because that said, hey, look, this was, you know, really the... Did he give the, you your company logo on that first thing? I don't remember. Um, but it, I think... I thought it, you were the guy who was the great memory. <laughs> I, but I when it, when it, when it comes part. to actual getting credit, which may be to our fault, which, but, but it's not something that we that we care about that much that we would remember. I mean, honestly, the, my worst part of any show is when the final credit list comes for me to look at because I know that I don't care. I want everyone to be happy, but I know that there's there's going to be fights and there's going to be people who are sad and somehow somebody's going to not get what they thought they were getting and and it's it's a terrible thing. I, I've I've often fantasized about a show where everyone just gets their names and there, there are no titles or everybody gets executive producer or something because to me... It is a team effort, and I hate the I hate the fact that that becomes the the focus of of a creative venture. And I mean, I think Barry's Barry's right. We're you know maybe just being contrarians, but you know the credits do matter. There is a certain you know commerce that comes with being able to trade on your credits. But I think in the scripted world, there's you know there's codified ways that you go through the ranks every year or whatever. As a writer, you get to get, you know, sort of negotiate a new level in the unscripted world. It is like Barry said, just sort of handed out 
sometimes indiscriminately. I mean, these days it seems like people who have, you know, worked for two years get, get a credit because they don't cost any money and production wants to keep costs down. They'll be like, all right, we'll pay you less, but we'll give you a credit. So I think it sort of diluted the the value of credits in the unscripted world. Just just on the credit thing, just one thing that, that is, as long as we're talking to people out there, the, the best piece of advice I ever got about what we all do was from Johnny Rotten, who we were working with, Johnny Lydon, who was the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. He was one of my idols growing up, and then I got to actually work with him on a show. And he said, whenever there's a problem in a creative venture, you can trace it back to one thing, ego. And if you can just find where that ego is, you can fix the problem. But that's what all your creative problems will be, is is when, when, there's, when there's a bump in the road. And... It didn't hit me that hard when he said it, but ever since then, I've always, whenever there's a problem in, in anything, I I hear those words and I think about it and I always find the ego issue and that makes it a lot easier to solve because it, it really and, does. And, and you're right about that. And But one of the things that's hard when it comes to the crediting and in terms of ego is that it would be different if no one got the credit. But where the ego comes in and the business comes in, because like you said earlier, credits are important in the sense they help you get to where you're going and they help people acknowledge you. And I was fortunate enough early on in television, um, I got an executive producer credit working on a show that I thought was amazing called Action, which was on Fox. And I... You know, I remember this. Eric Tannenbaum, who was the head of uh, Columbia TriStar uh, Studios, or he gave me an executive producer credit, and I uh, there had been an ask made to me, and Jay Moore, who I represented at the time, he wanted somebody who he knew was there, who could have a vote and protect him. He didn't care about the executive producer credit at that time in his career, but he wanted somebody there who could focus on that so he could focus in on being the lead and doing great work as an actor, which was the most important thing to him. And the executive producers on the show at the time were Joel Silver, who was one of the biggest film producers of all time. The show was modeled after him, the lead character, Peter Dragon. And Joel had produced everything from 48 Hours to The Matrix. I mean, he'd done everything. We had the late Ted Demi, who was one of the greatest uh, young directors of my generation, who was an executive producer and also the director of the pilot. You had Chris Thompson, who is a genius, who had worked on, created The Naked Truth with Tay Leone. He'd worked on The Gary Shandling Show. He'd done amazing things. He had actually created two shows that year that got on the air, Ladies' Man with Alfred Molina for CBS and action for Fox. And Don Rio, who is a guy who started off his career uh, touring with Slappy White when he was 17 and went on to create so many shows that went to syndication, started in mainstream television with uh, successfully with Blossom, but also worked, I believe, on Jackie Gleason, created My Wife and Kids with um, uh, Damon Wayans, which went to syndication always you know he was like a he was a force and then there was me who knew nothing about anything but they all treated me like i was i was somebody who belonged and i knew that getting that credit was like i felt like i i should wear clown shoes to the set every day 
because I had no business being an executive producer. But what's weird is all of their egos, and, and they were both uh, report. All of them, all of those people, were reported to having some, you know, strong egos. They never treated me like I didn't belong, and they always gave me my responsibilities that I had to do. And it was like making a film every week. And from that point on, it was like heroin or ecstasy, pardon the expression. I, I wanted to be in that position. I wanted to have myself in that position to be able to experience that kind of level in the business and be in those meetings and be one of the people who had a vote in something. Even if I was, my vote really didn't count that much because when you are executive producing, when you're a showrunner, your votes count tremendously well and they're the highest level votes. When you're somebody like myself who's a manager producer, my vote isn't as strong a lot of times and sometimes you're pushed to the side so much your vote is inconsequential and sometimes an artist trusts you so much that your vote actually is as strong as the showrunners but the point being is that I often wonder when I'm going and I'm putting a show together and I and I ask for that credit and I fight for that credit for myself I wonder to myself, is that ego or is it a situation where I'm just trying to fight and be a person who's there to protect the artist? And where's the balance? And I never actually know per se, but I know that I always want it. And when you are showrunners like yourselves, you can't do a show without having it. You have to have those credits. You have to be the guys who are the boss. There has to be a tiebreaker somewhere. And, and that's how it starts happening. And the only way you can guarantee that you're going to get it, guarantee that you're going to get it. I'm not saying you can't get it other ways, but the guarantee it is to take the risk, start your own company, and create your own shows, which you guys did, and which is amazing. So I want you to take me through uh, some of your early stories uh, involving some of... Uh, the show is, but I want to just, if you could, because I don't want to take too much time, I'm going to mention a show and I want you to tell me, or an artist, and I just want you to tell me just one quick thing or some unique story or something special that might be like sort of like the holy shit moment about that show or whatever it could be. And I'll just go randomly. Let's uh, do. Uh, we just going to call out words, just going to yell like suicidal. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. Uh, The controversial Welcome to the Neighborhood, the ABC series about prejudice in America. Tell me something about that. Tell me a story, anything that would mean something. The the simple version is we found a a for real. We found a cul-de-sac in Texas uh, with a bunch of Texans, and they were very conservative, homophobic, slightly racist, and had never really seen people who were different than them and we bought a house on the cul-de-sac and the neighbors agreed hey we're going to play this game and then you get to pick who lives in this house so it was a competition reality series where we brought in um i believe it was eight families uh to compete in a variety of different you know games mental physical challenges that that kind of thing and then the judges were the actual neighbors themselves so they were the people that were eliminating one family per episode until they bestowed upon the last standing family the house on the corner 
And and in the beginning, the neighbors would say things on camera like, "If a homosexual couple comes by my on this block, we will kick them out right away," etc. And that was an excellent impression, thank, thank by you, the way. Thank you, Texas. I love you. Um. So, uh, so we brought in seven families, eight families, whatever it was, that were all their worst nightmare. We, we're going to create a show right now together, <laughs> and I guarantee you, it will get sold. You ready? Ready. Ready. All right. So here's the show. We take the idea that you just had, okay? The premise of the idea. It's a cul-de-sac, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We know there are a bunch of people who are racist who live on the cul-de-sac. There's a house for sale. We buy the house, and we get... Uh, a group, a family, maybe a blended family or an African-American family who are all actors. We cast them. They're all unknown actors. And we have them buy the house and move in and we film it. That to me would be an unbelievable. We, we tried this. I mean, we, we tried to pitch this. We had a good yeah. title for it too. What was it called? I mean, it was, there goes the neighborhood. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, have yet to sell it, but we love this idea. So There it goes. No, but now Barry basically, because yeah. he has podcast proof, is now an executive right. producer right. of the project. <laughs> Welcome, Mr. EP. We're happy to have you. But it's all ego. Did you get a title <laughs> card also? Yeah. Yes, I got a, a single title uh, card. Before, before Main ours? title. No. No, remember remember in Tourgasm? My credit was after yours. <laughs> Way See, after yours. we don't yours. remember because we don't pay attention. I was, I was at the very end. Okay. And I didn't want to be anywhere near you guys because I knew that uh, you guys were the, the, the people. Uh, gigolos. Yes. Um... What can oh. we say about you? Oh, sorry. That was a question. No, Tony. I will say it's a show on Showtime about male escorts in Vegas. Um, we're in our fifth season. I will say you can say something funny, but I, I will say working with Showtime is, is fantastic. They're, they, they, is that Gary Garfunkel or Randy Runkel? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's Gary Levine. And, oh, um, Gary Levine. Okay, Amy great. Israel. And, and Amy Israel. And great, yeah. They mostly work on scripted shows. And David Evans also with yeah, and, and And they, they, so they give us notes as if we're making Homeland, even though we're making a reality show about male escorts in Vegas. And their notes are actually making the story and the show better and that's it's a rare thing in this business um so i i think about certain shows like we i interviewed uh, joe weinstock who's the executive producer of duck dynasty and also now works at uh we love discovery yeah. amazing guy and you know he didn't really get into it but i know for a fact that there's a team of writers that are writing that show like it's a sitcom uh, I very I know the one of the head writers and people have worked on it in the past. But what's weird about your shows, and you could dispel my uh, you know my assumption of it all. I never felt like you guys had a team of writers trying to put stories together. I always felt like you guys were putting the stories together. Now that doesn't mean that you're not writing a few things and saying to Brace, okay, Brace, I want you to take this girl out and instead of doing this, do that. But I don't feel like you're overproducing them. Am I wrong? I think you're a hundred percent right. I think that it going back to storytelling, like we were talking about before, I think if 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 you pull together the right premise that flows in the right way and has questions, yes or no's to to ask at the end, then then it can feel a lot more organic and the and the 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 story just flows. 
I think also casting is, you know, a huge part of what we do. And when you have a, a great cast, um, you know, the producing isn't writing. It's just sort of organizing. It's scheduling things properly. It's making sure that, yes, this might not be the day they were going to go get, you know, a tattoo removed or this might not be their actual birthday. It might be two or three weeks later. You make those things happen out of time. That's the producing that's going on mostly on our shows and not like, hey, say this and then she's going to walk in and pull your hair and you're going to kick her or whatever, that that kind of stuff. I don't know what I was doing there, but which I was channeling. I think it was a hair weave or something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. But but the the other, the, the worst part about the kind of stuff we do that, that back to ego, is that when our shows work, they should feel organic and authentic. It doesn't matter what happens behind the scenes. It should feel like you just said, and, and I'll take that as a compliment. We can never shout from the mountaintops all the all the work we do because the second we start doing that, then the then your love of the show sort of falls apart. And so it's a weird thing where in success we can't claim credit for our genius, and and. It's like, don't laugh at me. You know, I'm right. And, and the, the truth is if it hurts the ego to, to live that way, but it's something that we sort of have to do. And I, I guess we've managed to, to make a living at it. All right. Restaurant stakeout for the food network. I always talk about restaurant shows sometimes because I, I feel like it's a very difficult thing getting a restaurant show going. And the reason being uh, for our audience is that, when you do a deal, let's say you're a restaurateur or whatever it is, and you do a deal with the network, they're writing a check. They're writing a check to give you exposure. When anybody writes a check, you lose control. And you don't have the final rights to anything. So restaurants, it's critical. If they don't have the control, they're in trouble. Because I'll tell you what great television is. Great television is when a rat walks across the kitchen floor and you get it on camera. That's holy shit television and what that is for the restaurateur that's closed down my business television so here you are doing the restaurant stakeout thing how do why do people even sign off on this shit well you're right it's really hard to get businesses and restaurants and hotels and to 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 do a show like this we we do on the issue do resort rescue too yeah for travel similar and and, it, and the casting is really hard what we do specifically, Tony and I, when we do these shows is we look at the long game and we, and we try to make the show work without closing down anybody. And we try to make the show work so that at the end of the episode, the, it's an advertisement for the place. And we've thrown out things that might be great TV, but we'll take down a restaurant owner because we know that in it's, it's not worth it for the short game of ratings on one episode then we can never cast another. And that's not fair to do to people who we're in business. We're, we're, we're trusting each other. And we're, we, like Tony said, we are loyal people. And despite the fact that we do unscripted reality and it's, could be say it's exploitive. We believe in human beings and we don't want to shut somebody down. I just, I don't think we could sleep at night if we, if we did. So we've, we've burnt footage of rats. We've burnt footage that probably would make the show just a little better, but it's just not worth it. Right. Here come the newlyweds and the high school musical for ABC. Uh, well, high school musical, I, I can tell you one of the reasons we took that, the, the ABC came to us with that and we weren't sure we wanted to do it, but we wanted money. To, 
Yes. <laughs> Def, definitely the, a lot, that wasn't a lot of money. Say. So some gigs you do for the money and some gigs you do for the respect. That, that we, Well, that one we also wanted to show the world that we, we're just, we're in the midst of family business, a funny show about, about a guy who makes anal porn. And we wanted to zag completely the other way and show like, hey, we're, don't put us in the, we don't just do shows about porn. Look, we're doing High School Musical. Like what could be, what could be further from Family Business High School Musical? It seemed like if we could do both of those and have those on a resume, then we can do anything. You just reminded me of something that, that <laughs> just, I, I see where this is going, Barry. <laughs> the thing Speaking about of anal porn in high school. Yes, Barry. <laughs> The thing about the thing about uh, Seymour Butts that now I remember vividly about his videos, there was always somebody around him who had his name tattooed on her lower back, and so when he was he, he was he was the ultimate visionary and brander. He would convince women in their own way, or else in his own huggable, lovable way, to put a tattoo of his name on their lower back and as he was filming it was the ultimate branding because when he was doing a an x-rated video you always knew where it was and where to look and where to search on the internet because that's what it was so it was like doing a, it, it was literally like doing a comedy special where you see the guy's name on the backdrop of the comedy special and you're like okay now i, I know who that person is uh, and and on a, a reverse way uh, to talk about this in comedy, Jay Moore did his last hour special for Showtime, and he we got in a big argument about this. He said, I am not putting my name anywhere on the stage. I don't want my name anywhere there. If people are going to know me, they're going to know me, and they're going to ask who that guy is, and I want them to do it that way. I do not want my name. I said, Jay, I mean, you can put your name. They'll know. They can be, no. And he was one of the first guys who was like, fuck, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to brand myself in this way. Yeah, Seymour Butts was a visionary. Uh, also uh, branded on his, uh, all of his uh, videos have the words 1,000% uh, anal on them as well, which I think is an interesting thing since that's physically impossible. But um, anyway, a thousand percent anal. That must have been Uncle uh, whatever his name was who uh, came up with that uh, slogan. Jay, I always had the, I used to have this line I used to love, uh, sort of an X-rated line. He used to say that, you know, as a guy, you're watching too much porn when you recognize an actor by his balls. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, shit. Yeah, uh, this is too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm digressing. All right. Before I get into the final roundup, tell me about what it's like working with Chelsea Handler and, and tell me uh, something that our audience wouldn't know about the inside the sausage factory of what it's all about there to uh, who, who I consider to be one of the most powerful and um, unique uh, characters of the game. I mean, yes, Chelsea is funny and amazing. And the only thing I get, I mean, the first time we ever had dinner with her when we first were getting to know her and, and it was one of those comedian meetings where I Tony, didn't, I didn't yeah. actually go to the parking lot to throw up. Yeah. That Tony <laughs> was, was nice. actually there. And I just remember before we even really got to know her, we had just sort of met her at this restaurant and she pulls the waitress over and points to me and says to the waitress, excuse me, can we please get a booster for him? <laughs> and I was like, all right, th this, th this is a funny woman. This could work. And, and, and then we sort yeah. of, she was consistently funny to be around just truly, a truly funny inspired person and that's you know a lot of 
people who do comedy are very dark and very angry. And when you're hanging out with them for dinner, it's not a pleasant experience. She was always really fun to be around. She's still dark and angry, but but she was fun to be around. Yeah, she was. And so, uh, what what were you? How did you start on the show? What were you doing there uh, on the show? And tell me where it was at in the process. It was it, we we knew her through her manager, um, who said, "Hey, check 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 her out." We saw some tape of her. At, from like a, a show in Tucson or something where like, oh, she's pretty funny. And he's like, yeah, I think he wants to do something with her. We're not sure what can you guys work with her and develop it. And so we basically just work with her mostly on her point of view because she was a little all over the place. And one of the things that we kept trying to beat into her, which I think kind of worked, was just you're a guy trapped in a in a chick's body. You're, you're you like to drink and you like to fuck. And um, she sort of she got that eventually. And I think that helped hone own the the comedy so it wasn't sort of shotgunned all over and you could really identify with her character and I, I think that sort of helped c click it for her and then we went out into the field and just tried a lot of things some things worked some things didn't you know man on the street stuff didn't always work great but like when we went to like an old age home for instance that was really funny and so we just started doing bits with her we brought uh chewy bravo who is uh a little friend of ours i mean he's a yeah whatever <laughs> i was didn't mean to make fun of his height, but he's a friend of ours. And uh, you changed you changed his life forever. I know. I recently saw him in a, in a, in a Porsche dealership checking out. I thought you were going to say I recently saw him in a porn video. No, no. Actually, yeah, he he was in a porn video too. I'm but that's a whole other. Pretty story. sure E doesn't want to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> well, that's why this is an E. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, but you this is this is another thing that people don't understand about uh, people like yourselves you change people's lives you know uh, when if you're a little person in our business there's maybe seven roles a year that come out that you're that, that are available for you in film or television at best and you're going on auditions against all of these people all the time and it's 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 almost impossible. And you'd think that the it's the one area that I uh, that I really am knowledgeable about because I represented Tony Cox, the little guy from Bad Santa, mm -hmm. and I represent an incredible incredible uh, actor comedian uh, Brad Williams. Um, oh, that guy's great. He's a, Brad. he's yeah. absolutely extraordinary, and and so. And you're going out and you're trying to get these things going and you and these people have no uh, the odds are so far against them. But the thing I was going to say, normally in life, the law of supply and demand, unless you want to talk about Seymour Butts and porn. It's, it's, it's almost like similar. It's weird that we're talking about this. The men, there's only 20 men or so that can perform on command with a camera. Maybe if there's 50, it's a miracle. Meanwhile, there's t there's women, thousands and thousands of women who can perform in adult film. The men make the least amount of money of anybody in the industry. Same with, believe it or not, little people. There's only a select few of them that can do great work on camera and 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 basically get a laugh on command or, or create that great dramatic moment on command like Peter Dinklage and 
they make the least amount of money of all of the actors and and it's and and there's there's so few people who can do it it's the weirdest thing and you can't point to a lot of places where they're that's at but for chewy you created that opportunity he's a huge star now and so you developed the chelsea handler show and are you there when the pilot gets shot yeah and you are we're there for the first season season or two i can't remember the first season or two yeah and so I know uh, these are all difficult things, and I just want to touch on it briefly because I think it's important. As a production company and showrunners, what happens is is that when you're doing a contract, normally what the network tries to do is they try to tell you, listen, the most we're going to lock you for is two years. And, and, and because they want the option of going in a, dire- a different direction or doing something a different way, or sometimes the artist is like, hey, you know, I want to be able to do this. And, and, and so as uh, Sandy Chandley, who uh, worked on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, I believe for the first year or so, and then uh, left, and then, you know, because of that situation, it must be difficult for you guys because you were a big part in my mind. And again, so you guys know, on shows like the Chelsea Handler show, there's really not a created by credit on these kind of talk shows. It's not there's nothing that comes on the screen that's created by. Very rarely do you ever see that. Like on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, you don't see created by you know, Jay Leno or whatever it is, or with Jimmy Fallon, or even with Jimmy Kim Alive, it has his name on it. And also on a lot of reality that's reality competition and not really scripted, they don't really give created by credits. So here you here you are, you essentially create the show with Chelsea and uh, the three of you together, along with her, uh, her um, producing partner. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, and you go ahead and you put that together, and then a year or so later, you do a great job, and you just say they say, hey, you know what? It's been fun. Thank you so much. And uh, but uh, we're going to do this on our own now. I, I think it's important for artists out there to 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 discuss, you know, when you're at your lowest moment, when you feel like you've done the best work possible. And you really feel you're onto something and it's like a plane taking off. And and because this has happened to me on occasions when I manage artists where I'm, I'm there, listen, they're doing $400 million films or they've got three television shows going. And then I'll get the call, you know, uh, this really isn't working out. And I'm like, well, I, I, I think it is working out. No, it's not working out. And, and, and you have to take that blow and then come back and 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 work just as hard to get to the next point i think it's important to talk about that i mean look i think i think every time and those blows happen as you know in this business once or twice a year possibly i mean they're 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 i think the more the more we do this the more we realize there's something better around the corner and that if we just keep at it and we keep persevering it'll come to us and it has over the years and i think we, I think when we first started, we were, we were holding on to things a little harder. We were a little more bitter when, when shit went down. And I, I, I try to keep the perspective of, 
hey, our work will speak for itself. Our success will continue to happen if we just keep plowing forward. It's a business where you never know who you're going to work with again. And so you try to you try to keep relationships going. I, I'd be lying if I didn't say there, there are times when when you get kicked in the balls where you just want to curl up in the fetal position in the corner and cry for two days. Um, and that happens often. But the truth is we've really made an effort to to look forward. And, and the more we do that, I feel like the more good things happen in our world and the more we get to work with really exciting people and do creative projects. But, but yeah, you, you get kicked in the balls and it sucks. So if that's the case, yes. and you're in a situation, uh, as Jay just- this till the end, didn't he? That's cool. As Jay just said with, with that, and you're working for somebody else and, and you're taking a check and when you take a check and you're working for somebody else, you're not in as much control. Explain to me then why did you do an overall deal to have a home at Relativity Television where chances are when you take an overall deal like that around a company, a bigger company, you get a check every other week versus the amount of money you'll make on your executive producers for producer fees. But it's a a security thing where somebody's writing you a check and you're doing great work, but you have a home, your offices are paid for and whatever. Why do that deal there knowing that once when somebody's writing the check, you're not in control as was you as as you would be on your own doing what you're doing. Is it well, strictly the thing that motivated us early on was that we were two best friends trying to make shows that we liked, things we wanted to work on. Maybe they took us to places we wanted to see. They were around, you know, people that we were fans of or whatever. So we were always really motivated by doing the kind of shows we wanted to do. Now, early on, we had the luxury of being able to make those decisions because our lives didn't cost that much. We weren't married yet. We didn't have kids. Um, so we were able to sort of do whatever and bootstrap it, uh, suffer through the lean times and not really care because it was just us. And then when the overall deal thing starts happening, we do have lives, we do have kids, we do have mortgages and having that weekly or like you said, you know, bi-monthly paycheck, it was, is that bi-weekly, bi-monthly, whatever, every other week check, um, that always throws me, uh, it gave us the security to again, pursue projects that we wanted to pursue and not have to do shows just for money. And so that there's a lot of motivation there that the relativity entity allows us to really pursue shows that we love that, you know, are really interesting projects and not have to have the worry of, oh, we need a paycheck by tomorrow or we're going to get foreclosed. And creatively, the truth is the success really comes when you follow your passion. It's just sometimes hard to do that when you're desperate for money. So, so I think in a way it, 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 it breeds success. The other thing is there is an upside because the way these deals work is at a certain point, if you're successful, you recoup what they've paid you and you get more. So it's not like we're, we're just working for the man. And, and we've done, we've been in deals. We've been out of deals. We'll, we'll do it again. We'll be our, on our own. We'll be in deals. It really depends on what's going on that year. Where are we in, in, in career and, and, 
And the good thing about relativity is that we do have more freedom than most places because they're sort of, they think a little differently. They're more, they're more like disruptors and, and mavericks. And I, I know that sounds like corporate speak, but they really are. And they, they let us do our own thing. It's and, a great and, company. And, and, and sort of jump around and, and, and pursue our, our passion projects, which end up usually working, working out well for everybody. All right. Heading in the definite final round up here. Uh, tell me a story that no one will fucking believe. It's just something that happened to you in your travels in this business that it would be like the highlight chapter of your book. We've seen a, we've seen a lot. I mean, we've gone to the worst prisons, you know, and and interviewed hardcore criminals. We've been into some things. We've seen some things on, you know, adult film sets that you can't unsee and unsmell. You just, there are things <laughs> that, that exist in this world that are really scary. Uh, and we've met some great people. We've seen. I was, I was, I was going to give them that the moment we thought our, our lives and careers were over from Nugent. It's pretty, that's pretty holy oh, shit. We almost killed that girl. Yeah. In a nutshell, <laughs> the, the, the simple holy shit was, it was one of our first shows that we had done on our own. It was a show with Ted Nugent for VH1 where a bunch of kids lived on his ranch and he would make them do various things and he was trying to see who, who deserved the money at the end who could survive his ranch. It was called Surviving Nugent. Well, we one of the bits we did was we buried these contestants up to their heads in, in, in his backyard and we had a safety guy who said we could bury them for 20 minutes and about 10 minutes in, he taps me on the shoulder and goes, did I say 20 minutes? I meant five. So we, we rushed to get them out of the hole that they were in. And by the way, at some point we were putting scorpions on their heads too, because that was part of the bit. And so one of the girls wasn't coming out so well. And uh, so we call an ambulance and all hell breaks loose. When on you this. say wasn't coming out. She so was well. a little like not moving very much. And as we got her out of the hole and so the entire you, you realize this was all for like five thousand dollars this challenge and you realize the lanes that people will go to for some cash they will be buried up to their heads in swamp water mud have maggots and then scorpions dropped on them and you know be ridiculed by ted and still stay in the freezing water unfortunately it was like a hypothermia situation so they all were rushed to the hospital so there's this moment I remember, talk about a holy shit moment, where Tony and I are, the, the, all hell breaks loose, the camera guys dropping cameras, running to pull them out, ambulances coming, sirens, people screaming. The our scorpion, our, the scorpion our, wrangler was really pissed because all of his scorpions, he had them named. He was like reaching into the mud, like pulling up like legs and tails, like, oh my God, Jimmy. His, scor <laughs> his scorpions were done. Our art director couldn't feel her arm because she had been bitten by a scorpion. She's screaming. And Tony and I are standing in the middle of this field and all chaos is just break it and we just look at each other kind of i remember it was almost in slow motion and it was like what the fuck have we done <laughs> and um it turned everyone lived uh, uh the 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 show ended up doing well uh the contestant we almost killed I, she didn't win but she was happy to be be there the next day the art it, director eventually regained yeah. feeling in her left arm <laughs> yeah scorpion guy was never happy with no, us but anyway no, that no. was one of those moments where we we might have been in over our heads Wow. Okay. Uh, your biggest disappointment and your proudest moment in the business. Biggest disappointment for me, Welcome to the Neighborhood getting pulled. It was a great show and, and controversy killed it. 
What about you, Tony? I would say for sure that's our biggest disappointment. I mean, we it was 10 days to air. The TV Guide article was already out, like in the issue that was, you know, on the newsstands. We were very excited. This was going to be an amazing show. It was going to change a lot of things for us and maybe for, you know, like Jay said, a lot of positive things could have come out of this for society. And uh, it was probably the biggest thing we'd ever done. And that disappointment, I think, will never go away. The fact that that got pulled will will always be with us. And the network executives who made the call to you, what did they say? I, I remember that call uh, so clearly. Um, the network executive who called me was, the, I think she was the president of ABC, and she had been fighting for it with the even higher-ups than her at Disney and lost the final battle and called me and cried. The pre and, and this is someone who we're, we were scared of. This, and she was, she was crying on the phone saying, I'm really sorry. This is the greatest thing I've ever worked on. I tried so hard. And was, there were, she was actually crying on the phone. I'll never forget that call. And just to let you guys know, in all my years of doing this, I've never known of an executive crying to me on any kind of disappointment <laughs> or anything like that. And that lets you know how passionate she was. And do you feel comfortable saying that executive's name? Who obviously there are very few female network executives who are president, so we could all look it up. But I, I think it's probably best if you look it up. But uh, okay, just, it's just we to protect. Like yeah, just to protect. That's her, okay. But, no but yes, problem. You, you can figure that one out if you want. We'll all be able to figure that one out. And that that. I have uh, even more respect for that person if it's possible than I than I had before. And uh, tell me your proudest moment in the business. <laughs> most moments are I don't know. Besides that's, that's, being called Herb from accounting. Well, that's I mean most of my I was just thinking about like my I was thinking about pride and I was thinking about my parents. Um, and most of my stories with my parents uh, go something like. Are you sure you want to put the family name on this? <laughs> um, so that's not a good place to search for pride. I think. I don't know. I, I get a great. Your pair. Wait, time out a second. Yeah. Uh, you make a lot of jokes about this, but I always feel like great artists, really great artists. There's this shit that happens as they're growing up and as they're trying to prove themselves that just like blow a hole through them. They just, it's just the, the most difficult things, or even if they're not difficult, they perceive them as difficult. And so, you know, I remember my mom, and I, I wouldn't be anywhere without my mom, but I remember when I started getting the entertainment business, she says, you know, wouldn't you want to be a hospital administrator? I see on the soap operas, those guys do really, really well. Uh, you know, for you, you talk a lot about those early years and the things that, that, that of, of, of what your parents perceived you should be doing or what you could do. Is that what drives you? I don't know. That's, uh, maybe my therapist might think that. I don't know. Um, I mean, I have, I have one sister uh, who has two master's degrees and a Ph.D., and I think my parents are proud of her. Um, I know they love me, and I am joking. They are very proud of what I do, but I don't think they really know what we do. So she's the favorite in the family. Probably, and she deserves it. She, work, she works harder, but we're, we're, our, my family's very close. I just don't think they really know what what we do. Still, so you Still, but, after but, all these years. But I'm going to share something with you, and I'm going to go a little bit with you here. 
you know what happens? You, you don't. Re, you never hear what your family believe. All you hear is, "Oh, you could do better," or "Why are you doing that?" or "What kind of thing was that?" But then when you leave, they're calling a hundred people and saying, "You gotta watch my son's new show. It premieres." I don't, think, I don't think my parents know what shows we've done. I mean, one time my dad said, "Oh, I was watching this thing the other night." I mean, he'll talk about like you know an episode of Bill Maher or something that he you know some you know movie that he saw that he loved. It usually involves bloodshed. And mm-hmm. he'll, he was like, oh, I saw this thing about this guy doing this thing. And I realized he was talking about a show that Jay and I did. I'm like, yeah, dad, that's my show. And he's like, oh, okay. Like, that was it. Like, he didn't really realize that he was watching a show that we had produced. Didn't, I guess, watch the credits or didn't read the credits. And it was telling me as if, like, I didn't know about this really cool credits show. Credits do go by fast. My dad is grateful that we do shows that have adult themes so that he could watch that kind of stuff on TV. <laughs> and my mom won't be mad at him. He's like, oh, I'm watching Tony's show. But I think he's probably just watching, like, Skin of Flicks. But he's like, oh, yeah, it's one of those things Jay and Tony are working on. Leave me alone. So you guys <laughs> so you guys don't have a proud, the proudest moment. I think we, I think when we feel proud is when we've got a team of people when we're on set and we're both there and we look out at, over these people that have worked with us for years and been loyal to us, camera guys, producers, um, PAs, et cetera, that it's, it feels like a family and we look at each other. And I think that's the, that's the moment of pride more than, than any one show. I think it's just having that, that great team. That's the first thing that Jay said this whole time that I agree with. I was going to say the same thing. I think the moment of pride does come when we're on set together and we look out and see like a a production working, uh, people running around shooting cool stuff. And, you know, we we're, we're still friends after all these years and we're still doing cool things together. That makes me really happy. Tell me a show that in the back of your minds, even though you were going forward with it, you thought was shit. And it became successful or did well. I don't even know what you're looking at me about. Uh, I'm always going to say something and you're going to go, don't say that. Don't say that. Uh, it's all about the truth and storytelling, isn't it? <laughs> Usually. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of shows that we've done, like like Gigolos, I think is a great show. I, I enjoy doing that show. I never would have thought it lasted five seasons and possibly more. I just sort of assumed like... I didn't think we would we would sell it, and then once we did it, I was like, "All right, well, this is one season; it'll be fun to do." And somehow it's connected, and I'm excited about that because I, I think yeah, that it's was good. hard to think that but, we would find enough women that would be willing to be vulnerable and be naked and do some of the things that they do on that show. I thought, "Oh wow, we're never going to be able to cast this one and you know get through." And we keep you know, there's, it sort of hit its stride in fifth season, and it I never would have thought that we we went that far. Tell me uh, your most difficult time together where you were at odds so much so that you might not have been talking. What was the circumstance that happened and how did you get through it? The drive over here was <laughs> very strict. No. Um, I would say it was probably the end of last year, honestly. It was probably the first time we had ever th- talked about the future in a way that didn't feel like we were completely in sync. I mean, one of the great things about having a partner that's you're also your best friend is we could really be in two places at the same time. I know if he's on a shoot in Vegas or, you know, he's pitching in New York, I know he's saying and doing exactly what I would be doing in that situation. And that's a great feeling. And we've always sort of sold ourselves that way. We could do more because we're a team. And uh, this was the first time that maybe, you know, Jay does a lot more of the traveling um, and he gets to be in the field a lot more and I miss that, but because of, you know, certain circumstances, we split that up that way. And I'm probably the one that complains more and don't laugh. 
<laughs> and uh, I know that's hard to believe. Herb from accounting does seem like a <laughs> rock solid guy in the kitchen. Uh, but we, we we talked about maybe, you know what, like maybe our, our visions for the company are, are different. And then we went away on vacation. We came back the first of this year and been doing great ever since. So it was just maybe we would just spend a little too much time together. Awesome. Okay, last question is this. So you've seen a lot of talent and you've seen a lot of young executives and established executives. So what advice do you have for anybody all over the world here in in our profession or honestly it applies to every profession? What advice do you have for an artist who's trying to make their mark and get to the next level because you work with so many comedians and musical artists and and Secondly, what advice do you have for the young executive who's trying to break through, make their mark, and get to a point where they can do what you're doing? I mean, I think one piece of advice, which you being a a manager of comedians may not agree with, but my one piece of advice would be don't be an asshole. Um, And I, I feel like the one thing when we bring people up, whether it's talent or people that are working for us, at a certain point, it's about quality of life and it's about who do you want to be around and do I want this person on my set? Do I even talent, even if the show is doing well, if the guy is just a complete asshole, you don't try as hard for, for that person on, on camera. And, and so I know that there's all these legends of these terrible human beings who are stars and you have to deal with them. Maybe it's just us, but we've gotten to the point where we just don't want to deal with that. And so my advice would be just be a good person and don't be an asshole. And if you work hard and you're talented at something, I think eventually you'll matriculate up. What about you, Tony? Um, I would say don't try too hard to impress people. Um, if, like Jay said, if you work hard and you're good at what you do, you will succeed. It sounds trite, but you really will. There's a lot of very untalented people out there. There's a lot of really bad people out there. And, at times it's hard to tell the difference between the good and the bad, but if you're good, you will, you will, you will succeed. I've seen it, you know, on so many levels and on the executive level, it's hard, you know, because it's such a fear-based world out there. You feel like if you, you know, you say yes to the wrong thing or you, you don't give the right guidance and the show doesn't work, you're going to get fired. And maybe that is the, the world out there, but I've seen good executives succeed because they really are just good people trying their best and they're not trying too hard to impress people. Awesome. This has been amazing. This is my first podcast with two talented executives at once. I feel like I got, uh, we got double our money's worth here. Not that we got paid anything. Um, thank you so much. Thank this was incredibly it. inspirational. I hope you had fun. This was great. It was the first threesome we've had that we didn't film actually. <laughs> odd. Have you done a podcast before? No, this is our first one. First podcast. Thank you so much. This is an honor. I appreciate it. As always, this is Barry Katz from Industry Standard. And if you like the show, Tell all your friends, and if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. And if you really like the show, tell my mom. They say it's the glory, I'll scream in name, put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car 
All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.